0: Our Father, this evening we draw near to you in Jesus' name to give you our praise and worship, our adoration, to set aside our natural instinctive preoccupation with ourselves and give our attention wholly and totally to you. And part of how that expresses itself is in our care for the brothers and sisters that are right here in this room, these people that we love and share ministry with, we think about, we know they have needs, they're mindful of our needs, and we thank you, Father, each week for the invigorating fellowship that strengthens us, that causes us to want to continue to follow you and to read your word and Father, we know that sin has stained every part of who we are, and that's why there's always a fight inside of us. We love Jesus, we love his word, we want to see the gospel prevail, and yet inside of us, deep down in the core of our being, there is this ongoing struggle we have, this tug away from you. And so meetings like tonight, meetings that we enjoy on the Lord's Day, all of these serve to strengthen us and renew us. and We pray that that would be the case this evening. We've already felt our own hearts filled with joy as we've declared the great praises of our Savior and King Jesus Christ. Father, we rejoice tonight that uh, Cortland and TJ are home. We are thankful that you prospered their ministry. And Father, it may be that for them, just as the case with all of us, fruit born from their ministry may never be seen by them this side of the new heaven and the new earth. They sow a little seed, they water a little seed, they make a little contribution here, a little contribution there. No idea, really, all that could take place. And we ask, O Lord and God, that you would use their labors wonderfully among a group of people that most of us will never meet, let alone understand. And yet these are young men and women made in your image that you love. And we are thankful, God, for the gifts that you have given to our friends. Continue to prosper them and use them. Thank you that they could be home for this season. We are thankful, O God, for Lee's... Success on the Lord's day for your blessing, his efforts with your power. And we ask that as he packs up to go to London for eight days, that you would please keep him safe as he travels, that he would find this to be an encouraging and illuminating time, maybe even a challenging time as he continues to seek your purpose for his life with specificity. Guide him, protect Judy while he's away. Show us how it is that we can embrace her. We do pray for our brother Julius and ask that you would give him travel, Lord, these many, many, many hours now of coming back from Uganda. Thank you for the influence of his ministry there. We look forward to hearing from his own lips, um, encouraging words about gospel opportunities that he has had. We pray that for the three weeks that he's here before he returns back to Africa that we could have an enjoyable time of fellowship. And Lord, we really do look forward to after the first of the year when perhaps with some measure of routine we can enjoy ongoing fellowship and mutual ministry. Father, beyond all of these things, we know that there are needs in the lives of every man and woman here tonight, every boy and girl, needs of different kinds. We pray, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would draw near to each man and woman tonight, each boy and girl, and provide comfort and encouragement, strength and confidence, a sense of peace in the midst of the tribulations that they're living with, the struggles that they're facing, challenges at work, tensions at home, physical challenges, Father, that most of us may not know anything about, economic needs. Oh, Lord and God, we need your grace every moment of every single day. And beyond all of that, Father, we're dealing with our own immaturity, our own struggle with sin. We confess our sin tonight and pray that you would wash us clean of all iniquity. We are thankful for the all-sufficiency of the cross. And Father, as we turn our attention to thinking about the cross tonight... We pray for your spirit to guide us and lead us. We always and in every way want to be faithful to your word, always. And every one of us here in this room is marked with limitation, imperfection. And and, and so, Father, all of us here with one voice deny any sense of arrogance, any sense of cockiness. And acknowledge that we are in every way dependent upon your spirit. We know that for the rest of our lives we will seek to be understanding the truth of your word. And even then, Lord, we'll never understand all of it. It is filled with immensities and infinities. And we look forward to the great and final day, perhaps in eternity, Father, when all of it will be made known to us. Until that time, may we be diligent And by virtue of our commitment to sola scriptura, scripture alone, may we always, always, always be willing to bow our knee to the authority of the truth, even if it means our preconceptions are overturned. When we experience those kinds of difficult things, we are confronted again with the reality of acknowledging that the Word is our ultimate authority. Not a man, not any other book, not our favorite preacher. So guide us, Father, tonight. We love you and praise you for the privilege of being together. Amen. And thank you to our musicians. Uh, Open your Bibles, would you, once again to John 17. John 17. even though it was nearly 30 years ago. 30! I can still remember where I was and what I was studying when this question pressed itself upon my mind with crystal clarity. I was preparing a sermon for um, a Good Friday service. And I was meditating on a single word. Only one word. <laughs> Tetelesti. In English it is finished I put my pencil down and I begin to ask myself what is finished what is finished Throughout church history, this declaration has been referred to as Christ's cry of victory over against Christ's cry of dereliction from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, why have you forsaken me? This is Christ's cry of victory. It is finished. But what does Jesus mean when he preaches this from his cruciform pulpit? Is he declaring that what is finished is a potential atonement for all people, but not an actual atonement for any people? For whom did Jesus Christ die? Did he, in his death, provide a potential atonement for every man and woman who ever lived, lives now and ever will live? Or in his death did Jesus Christ provide an effectual atonement for a specific group of people, sinners chosen by God for eternal life? What was Jesus doing on the cross? What was his intention? Was he doing something that actually saved sinners? Or was he simply making all people save a bull? Did Jesus actually reconcile us to God or did he merely make us reconcilable? Did Jesus Christ die on the cross for all people with exactly the same intent so that measured on any axis, it is impossible to avoid the conclusion that the ultimate distinguishing mark between those who are saved and those who are not is their own decision, which at the end of the day is surely grounds for boasting. The defining question related to this subject is this. How are we to limit the atonement? How are we to limit the atonement? You say, now wait just a minute. You've just made a significant, huge assumption. You assume that I limit the atonement and that the only real question is how I limit it. Exactly. Exactly. Friends, because every evangelical on the planet limits the atonement. You say, but I disagree. If it's one thing I most certainly do not do is limit the atonement. Really? Then let me ask you, are there people right now experiencing the realities of eternal condemnation? Will there be people in hell for all of eternity? You say, well, not that I take any delight in it. But yes, there are. And yes, there will be. Right. But in that answer, you've confessed more than you realize. You've acknowledged a limitation in the atoning work of Jesus Christ, a limitation in its accomplishment. If you acknowledge, dear friends, that not all people will be saved for whom you simultaneously uh, assert substitutionary atonement has been made, then the only view of atonement you can be left with is this. On the cross, no one was actually redeemed, only that all people were made redeemable. All were saved potentially, but none were saved actually. You see, beloved, you make the atonement universal, and by natural consequence, you are forced to limit its accomplishment. Because by your own admission tonight, not all people are saved. There are people in hell tonight for whom Jesus Christ has made complete substitutionary atonement. it is finished. Does that sound like potentiality to you? He wasn't speaking of potentialities, was he? He was speaking of actualities. Something was accomplished. Something was done. Something was finished. Something was achieved. Not redemption made possible. Not reconciliation made possible. Not propitiation made possible. Redemption accomplished. Reconciliation secured. Propitiation effected. On behalf of whom? For all? Then why will some people perish eternally? Does the righteous God unjustly require a double payment for sin, both the payment of his own son and that of the unrepentant sinner? Then at the end of the day, dear friends, was anything really, truly finished? Well, some might say, um, it's because such a person didn't believe. God condemns them for their unbelief. Oh, but I thought the idea was that Jesus Christ paid for all the sins of all people. Well, he paid for all the sins of every person except the sin of unbelief. Then you've just limited the atonement and suggested that belief is the one work I contribute to my salvation. My dear friends, I want to tell you, if I believed in an unlimited atonement, then I would have to be a universalist. Because the one thing the Bible will not let me do is limit the significance of what was really accomplished at the cross. Any honest reading of the Bible forces a choice upon you, unless you are a universalist, an atonement of ultimate value, or an atonement of universal extension. So what I would like to do tonight is begin with a consideration of how Jesus answers this question. Because most certainly, we want to think about atonement the way he does. Right? Don't you? Nod. Very good, I'm glad. Good, good. Okay? The structure of John 17 is very simple. In verses 1 to 5, Jesus prays for himself. In verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays for his disciples. And finally, in verses 20 through 26, Jesus expands his prayer to embrace all who will come to believe in him through the message of the apostolic gospel. Now, in the middle section, verses 6 through 19, Jesus makes three requests on behalf of his disciples, the third of which appears in verses 17, 18, 19. So listen to the request itself. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now, what does Jesus mean by the term sanctify? It's one of those terms that gets thrown around a lot. Very, very rarely, it seems, is it properly unpacked. It's a term that belongs to a family of words that speak of holiness, And of course, first and foremost, the term holy is often used as an adjective for God himself. It's a way of saying, not that we're good, but God is really good. It's a way of saying that God is set apart. God is altogether other. He is distinct and separate from his creation. And so, in like manner, people and things uniquely set apart for God are said to be holy or sanctified. For example, Aaron and his sons were sanctified, set apart to serve God as priests. The altar on which they would offer sacrifices was sanctified, that piece of furniture, consecrated, sanctified, uniquely dedicated to God for that sacred purpose. You couldn't use it for a potluck dinner. In fact... All of the furnishings within the tabernacle and even the tabernacle itself were said to be sanctified, separate from everything else, for the distinct purpose assigned them by God. Okay? So, to what end does Jesus now ask his Father to sanctify these men? Look at it. It tells itself. It's so simple. Sanctify them in the truth, or sanctify them by means of the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Set these men apart by your word for the sacred purpose of sending them into the world. It's an astounding request. Equip them by the means of your word for the purpose of mission. Just as you sent me into the world, Jesus says, so I turn around and send them into the world. That's where we are to do our ministry, friends. And therefore, what is so essential for every one of us is to be sanctified by means of the scripture. In fact, that's what a good seminary ought to do. It ought to make a group of people expert in the word for the sake of mission. But here's the point. On what basis can Jesus make this request? On what grounds can Jesus ask his father to do this? Can he ask his father for sanctifying grace on behalf of these men because they really are such good guys? They really are a cut above everybody else. Their commitment really is outstanding. They've always been faithful, always proved to be zealous in their enthusiasm because they really are exceptional men because they've earned this blessing by means of their impeccable commitment. On what basis can Jesus make this request? And the answer is so very simple. Jesus can ask his father for sanctifying grace on behalf of these men Because very soon on the cross, he would earn it for them. Look at it. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. Why? So that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, friends, let me ask you. For what sacred purpose does Jesus sanctify himself? For what sacred purpose does Jesus consecrate himself? If that's what your translation says, it's the same Greek term. Jesus Christ, you know this from the gospel of John, one end to the other. He sets himself apart for the cross. And for their sake, I consecrate myself. I sanctify myself to go to the cross and all of that redeeming work so that they also may be sanctified in truth. Now, do you see how this all hangs together? The sanctification of the disciples by means of the truth, verse 17, essential to the success of the gospel as they go into the world, verse 18, would be secured on the basis of Jesus' own act of self-consecration. In other words, his death will purchase the grace... He beseeches his father to dispense. But now notice something very important. According to Jesus. According to Jesus. For whom does he set himself apart as a sacrificial offering? Look at it. Look at it. For whom does he set himself apart as a sacrificial offering? And for them. For their sake. It's the little phrase, It appears all through John 17. The little preposition, pair means on behalf of. On behalf of. On behalf of. And on their behalf, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. And in this context, dear friends, to whom is the them? Said in contrast... The same group against which they are contrasted all through this prayer. Let me just show you a couple of instances of this. Look at verse 14. Notice the contrast. It's really, really basic. I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Notice the contrast. Them, the world. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. With whom are the them steadily in contrast? The world. Them, the world. Them, the world. Them, the world. So let me now ask you again. For whom does Jesus set himself apart as a sacrificial offering? Look at the text. We have we don't have to guess. It's beyond any and all ambiguity. For them. You see the intention? Do you see the particularity? It's the same distinction we discovered last Wednesday evening, right? A larger group and a smaller group. A larger group and a smaller group. The larger group... All flesh over whom Jesus exercises authority. The smaller group, those to whom he gives eternal life. We saw it over and over and over again. And how throughout this prayer does Jesus define this smaller group? Remember that repeated phrase? Those whom you gave me out of the world. Now it is the same group that Jesus has in mind right here in verse 19 when he says... And for them, for their sake, I consecrate myself, so that they may also be sanctified in truth. For good reason, John 17 has been referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our high priest. You say, but in what sense is Jesus our high priest? Well, what were the two primary functions of the high priest in the Old Testament, dear friends? Two basic things. To pray for the people, to make atonement for the people. To pray for the people, to make atonement for the people. To pray for the people, to make atonement for the people. Moreover, the people for whom the high priest would pray and the people for whom the high priest would make atonement were one and the same. So the high priest did not on the one hand pray for the people of Israel and then on the other hand enter into the Holy of Holies and offer an atoning sacrifice for the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Those for whom he prayed and those for whom he made atonement were one and the same represented by the 12 stones embedded upon the breastpiece he wore near his heart, 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the totality of God's people. His two priestly functions then, making atonement, making intercession, were coextensive. The people for whom he prayed, the people for whom he made atonement, were one and the same. Now, it is the book of Hebrews, you see, among a few others, that tells us that all of these Old Testament priests were a foreshadowing of the great and ultimate high priest, Jesus Christ. Moreover, Hebrews tells us that he has exercised that dual priestly function in fulfillment of what those previous priests had done in anticipation. He prays and he makes atonement. He prays and he makes atonement. And just as it was with the Old Testament high priests, those for whom this high priest prays and those for whom this high priest makes atonement are one and the same. So let me ask you, for whom does this high priest, Jesus Christ, pray? Look at verse 9. I am praying, same phrase, for them. In fact, let me be a little more specific. I am not praying for the world. You know why? If Jesus Christ, in his efficacy, prays for the world, the world gets saved. I am not praying for them, I am am praying for them, I am not praying for the world, but, watch now, for those whom you have given me for, they are yours. He doesn't pray for the world. He prays for those who have been given to him by way of divine prerogative. Well, if the functions of this high priest are coextensive, and Jesus Christ prays only for his own, for whom then does he exercise this second priestly function, that of making atonement? You don't have to guess. It's not by inference we know this. Look at verse 19. And for them. I consecrate, I sanctify, I set myself apart. That they also may be sanctified in truth. That they also may be sanctified in truth. That they also may be sanctified in truth. Do you notice, friends, that there is no gap here? Those for whom Jesus dies and those who are truly sanctified are one and the same. In other words, this was not a death that accomplished something potentially. This was a death that accomplished something effectually. May it be said, beloved, of the whole world, they will be truly sanctified. You see, you broaden the range of people for whom Jesus dies a substitutionary death, and you compromise the integrity of what that death accomplishes. Efficacy is tied to particularity. That is, unless you are a universalist. What was the intention in the death of Jesus Christ? To provide a potential sacrifice for every man and woman who ever lived, lives now, or ever will live? Or to provide an effectual sacrifice for a specific group of people, those whom God had chosen for eternal life? You know the answer to that from last week. And you recite this very thing every Christmas. When your ears get open, you're you're, you're going to be amazed at how this is everywhere. She will bear a son, Gabriel says to Joseph. And you shall call his name Yahweh saves Jesus. For he will save, he will save. Do you hear potentiality there or efficacy? He will save his People from their sin. Do you hear universality or particularity? Once again, it is an efficacy tied to particularity. These two things go together. How does Jesus say it in John chapter 10? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. A distinct group that Jesus later refers to as my sheep. In the very same conversation, he says to the Pharisees, you are not part of... My sheep, I lay down my life for the sheep, my sheep. Do you hear the particularity? And do you remember by chance the words of wicked Caiaphas? We saw this last spring as we worked through John 18, 19, 20, 21. He spoke better than he knew this high priest when he said to the Sanhedrin, It is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. For whom did Jesus die? For the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. My friends, it could not be stated any more plainly. For whom would Jesus die? Not only for Jews, but for a world of sinners that John refers to as the children of God who were scattered abroad. Abroad, the children of God who are scattered abroad. You say, oh, well, all right, there it is. Universal atonement. The children of God scattered abroad. Are all people the children of God? Not according to Jesus, because in that very same context, he refers to the Pharisees as being, you are of your father, the devil. Do you hear the particularity? And the specific efficacy that is tied to that particularity? Jesus dies for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. You understand what he's saying? Jew, Gentile, to make them into one new humanity. It is Ephesians chapter 2 to the T. It's a reference to the church. The body of Christ, not the world. Does Jesus Christ make the world one? Greater love has no one than this. That someone laid down his life for. His friends. Do you hear the particularity? His people. His sheep. The children of God. His friends. You know what, beloved? You sang it tonight. Do you honestly think. That the lyrics we choose are accidental. You don't think they're very carefully measured? Crown him the Lord of life, who triumphed o'er the grave, who rose victorious to the strife for those he came to save. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, humbled himself, so great his love, and bled for all his chosen race. That's not an accident, friends. And what does Jesus himself say? For even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom. There's efficacy for many particularity. And do you realize what we stand up here and say every Sunday? Aaron, Brandon, Norm, Jared, me, whoever it happens to be. We said every week to you, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you hear the particularity? Every single Sunday for many, and the efficacy for the forgiveness of sins. Did Jesus Christ in his death provide a potential atonement for every man and woman who ever lived, lives now and ever will live? Or in his death, did Jesus Christ provide an effectual atonement for a specific group of people? Sinners chosen by God for eternal life. This is the intention of the atonement according to Jesus. It's the intention of the atonement. What is the intention of the atonement according to Paul. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. What is the atonement, the intention of the atonement according to the Apostle Paul? Ephesians chapter 5. In the book of Ephesians, oops. Paul is concerned to show how all things ultimately will be brought under the headship of Jesus Christ in a glorious unity. And even now, Paul is saying that intention is to express itself in a Christian home. There is unity under the headship of Jesus Christ. And we are going to look at this, by the way, very, very carefully over several weeks 10, 15, maybe 20 weeks, beginning in January. For the time being, however, let me please draw your attention to a specific text, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Notice it doesn't say husband, love all wives. Husbands, love wives. Husbands, love your wives. Do you hear the particularity? The exclusivity. So why should Aaron love Maggie like no other woman? Answer? Because Dr. Phil says so? I'm serious. What's the basis for your ethics at that point? Culture says it's a good idea. Not if you live in Nigeria. It's because of the model God has given him to emulate. Look at it. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved his bride, the church. And how did Jesus display his exclusive love for the church? Look at the very next line. And gave himself up for who? Her. Why did Jesus give himself up for her? Paul says because Jesus loved her. So husbands love your wives. I mean, the logic is as simple as pie, friends. You say, now, wait a minute. Doesn't God love all people? Yes. Please remember you heard that from me. Yes, 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 yes. God loves all people. But does God love all people in exactly the same way? Not if your name is Esau. There are people who will live and die, never hear the gospel, and face eternal condemnation, and justly so. You're going to dare call God unfair? Some sinners will perish eternally. Some sinners will not. And last week we discovered, right, that the difference lays not in the merits of the specific people involved. All are guilty, but rather in the electing purposes of God. God does not love all people in exactly the same ways. Yes, God does some things for all people, but this is not to say that God does all things for all people. God does all things for some people. What I'm trying to get at, friends, and I hope this comes up more in the Q&A night, our problem really grows out of an, an underdeveloped theology of God's love. A concept, you see, that is extraordinarily complicated and filled with all kinds of nuances and distinctions. God loves to be sure, but this doesn't mean that He loves everything in exactly the same way. And it seems to me that you and I, we ought to know this. I love pizza, I love the San Francisco Giants. I love the music of Arturo Sandoval. I love Lori, but I don't love any of these in exactly the same way. Somehow, for some reason, we've not been quite so discriminating regarding how God loves and the implicit thing behind all of this, you see, is we think it's his job to love. If Norm said, I love all the sisters at Trinity Church, we would say, Well, he's a good elder. If Norm said, I love all the sisters at Trinity Church like I love Elaine, we would say, Houston, we have a problem. (laughs) It's our lack of discernment here, you see, regarding the distinct ways God loves that has hurt us, and at the end of the day, beloved, diminishes God's love rather than exposes the fullness of its intensity. And by the way, at least according to Paul, is anything actually accomplished in the death of Jesus Christ for his bride? Is something accomplished actually, not potentially? Look at it. Look at it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that... He might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This is why your life needs to be entwined with the church. Look at her destiny. This is why you give your life to the church. You see, this is why you don't give token allegiance to the church. This is why everything about your Christianity is bound up with the church. Look at her glorious future. This isn't said about any other organization, dear friends. She is his bride. He does everything for her. Something actually happens to those people for whom Christ dies. Efficacy is tied to particularity. Did Jesus Christ in his death provide a potential atonement for every man and woman who ever lived, lives now, and ever will live? Or in his death did Jesus Christ provide an effectual atonement for a specific group of people? Sinners chosen by God for eternal life. This is the intention of the atonement, according to Paul. We've seen the intention of the atonement according to Jesus. Finally, how about the intention of the atonement according to heaven? Turn to Revelation chapter 5. The intention of the atonement according to heaven. In heaven, would you agree with me? They know who Jesus is. (laughs) Would, would Would you concede that? Thank you. In heaven, they know what he's accomplished. Would you concede that? Good. In heaven, their theology is straight. Would you concede that? Thank you. And here is this scene of the great lion lamb in the very throne room of God and he is surrounded by living creatures and the elders who sing of his worthiness. By the way, dear friends, let me remind you that there is more music in the book of Revelation than any other book of the Bible except for the the Psalter. So why don't we take a look at the songs in the book of Revelation and sing like that, shall we? And at the end of the day, as long as the lyrics resemble what's here, who cares if there's a drum or no drum? Look at the content. These aren't 7-11s, right? Seven words, 11 times. Look at the substance of what they're singing about. And they sang a new song. Oh, new songs appear in the Bible, always in relationship to various accomplishments of redemption. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Why are you worthy? For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Here are the residents of heaven declaring the accomplishments of Jesus Christ. And did you see the particularity assigned to his atoning work? Look at it, friends. It isn't complicated. You just have to see it. Notice that they do not sing, You are worthy because you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. That is every tribe and language and people and nation. You are worthy because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Notice that next word. Everything turns on those little words. The little preposition, "ek." It's what we call a partitive preposition. It means out of. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Out of every tribe and language and people and nation. Do you see? Do you see? And do you see the efficacy that is tied to this particular atonement? Verse 10, And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The people Jesus purchases become kings and priests. It's the very thing we've been seeing on Sunday morning. To him who loves us, us, and freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom priest to serve his God and Father. Those for whom Jesus dies are those he makes to be a kingdom of priests who will reign on the earth. And, and, and friends, by the way, just in case you think that this somehow undercuts evangelism, I'm going to explain to you a bit more in a minute about how it doesn't. But just for a little bit of a historical tidbit, because some of you here are thinking about being missionaries. You read the biography of William Carey. William Carey, by the way, 19th century is called the great century for modern missions. William Carey, the father of the modern missionary movement. Why does he go to Calcutta? Why does he go to India? He goes to India because he reads Revelation 5 and says, Jesus didn't die a potential death for all. He died a real and actual death for some. Out of every tribe and nation. So I'm going. Doesn't cut the nerve of evangelism. It emboldens it. I'm not crossing my fingers and hoping for the best. I know there are people out there for whom Jesus has died. The revelation of God concerning the intention of the atonement, beloved, is consistent through and through. According to Jesus, the intention of the atonement is particular and efficacious. According to Paul, the intention of the atonement is particular and efficacious. According to heaven, the intention of the atonement is particular and efficacious. Did Jesus Christ in his death provide a potential atonement for every man and woman who ever lived, lives now, and ever will live? Or in his death, did Jesus Christ provide an effectual atonement for a specific group of people, sinners chosen by God for eternal life? My dear friends, I would submit to you tonight, according to the word of God, the intention of the atonement is particular because the intention of the atonement is efficacious. On behalf of all of God's elect, or if you prefer to say it like this, on behalf of all those who will come to Jesus Christ in faith. It reminds me of a story, and my guess is many of you have read it and never thought about the implications, friend. You remember a man in the Old Testament by the name of Eli? Eli was a priest, wasn't he? Eli had two boys who became priests, two sons. But those two, those two sons were blasphemous before the living God. They used their priestly position as a basis for sexual exploitation, financial profit, mocking God. And Eli, the man of God, knows it and does nothing to restrain them. And so to Eli, God swears an oath. How often do you read God swearing an oath? God doesn't need to swear an oath. So when he swears an oath, you better listen because there ain't no going back. He says through the young boy Samuel, quote, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. did Jesus Christ in his death provide a potential atonement for every man and woman who ever lived, lives now and ever will live? If you answer that question in the affirmative, then you need to listen to this narrative because God does something here that he rarely does, friends. For a brief instant, he pulls back the curtain that ordinarily hides his secret counsel. And he says, for them, those guys right there, I will never, ever, ever, ever provide an atoning sacrifice. Why? Because I never intend to forgive them. And that is precisely what atonement accomplishes forgiveness. The intention of atonement is particular because the intention of the atonement is efficacious. It is finished. Not salvation made possible. Salvation made actual. Jesus redeemed. Jesus reconciled. Jesus propitiated. And not one iota does this undercut the passion of our evangelism, friends. I said to you last week, I don't know who the elect are, nor is it my business to know. In the very same way, I do not know the people for whom Jesus Christ dies a redeeming death. Neither of those things is my business. It's like I said to you last week, and I'm going to keep coming back to this it's like the plumbing in my house. You come into my house, you don't see the plumbing. You don't need to see the plumbing. But the plumbing is what makes everything else work. And you need to keep in mind that the doctrines of grace, friend, are not the gospel. Churches get into deep trouble when it's always the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace are not the gospel. The doctrines of grace make the gospel work. See, the gospel invitation is not God will save you if you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. If you ever find a verse that says that, you come and show me. But you're going to spend a long time because there ain't one. And all I'm saying is we need to make sure our evangelism matches what we find on the pages of the New Testament. You don't see Jesus or the apostles ever saying that to unbelievers. No, the gospel invitation is this. The atonement of Jesus Christ is a full atonement sufficient to blot out the sins of any and every sinner who comes to him in repentance and faith. You hear me say that every Sunday. You hear me say that every Wednesday without ambiguity, as clear as I possibly can. Because you see, beloved, had God intended to save one sinner or a billion worlds of sinners... Jesus Christ would not have had to suffer one moment more or one moment less. It's why I don't like the label limited atonement. It applies something lacking in it, something deficient in it, something narrow about it. We offer the gospel to all people without restriction. Why? Because it is sufficient to save all those whom God is determined to save, all those, everyone who would dare come to Jesus Christ in repentance and faith. You see, understand this. Knowing that Jesus died for me is not a condition to being saved. It's the consequence of having been saved. Jesus died for me is not the essence of effective evangelism. It is the experience of authentic assurance. And so if you were here and you are not a Christian tonight... I invite you without reservation to the crucified and risen Lord who is mighty to save, whose work on the cross is all sufficient to save you, who will never ever turn away anyone who ever comes to him. And if you come up to me and say, Art, did Jesus Christ die for me? What I will say to you is this, do you want a savior? Do you need a Savior? Are you mourning over your sin? Are you absolutely convinced that you were lost? Have you come to realize that nothing you can do can atone for your sins? That the judgment of God is hovering over your head? And are you saying, Lord, if you don't save me, I will die? If your answer to those questions are yes, then you come and trust in Jesus Christ right now because he died for you. It was the intention of the atonement. He died for all who would come to believe in him. Let's pray together, shall we?